0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where, for 27 years, we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program. It's my pleasure to introduce the second speaker in our spring series, Perspectives on America, Election 2008. Randall Balmer is Professor of American Religious History at Barnard College, Columbia University, and Visiting Professor at Yale University Divinity School. He is Editor-at-Large for Christianity Today, and his commentaries appear regularly in The New York Times, Nation, and Sojourners. He is the author of 11 books, including Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, A Journey into the Evangelical Subculture in America which has been an award-winning documentary for PBS. In his new book, God in the White House, A History, 1960 to 2004, Dr. Balmer traces a movement in presidential politics from John Kennedy's assertion that a candidate's faith should not be considered in the voting booth to recent elections when candidates are expected to disclose their religious views, and in Dr. Balmer's words, to expound on their personal relationship to the Almighty. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Randall Balmer.
1: Thank you very much. Having grown up, I spent the first quarter century of my life in. Places like Iowa and Michigan and Nebraska and Illinois. It's always good to become coming back to the Midwest and in fact from the years nineteen fifty seven to nineteen sixty-three, when my father was pastor of the Evangelical Free Church in East Chain, Minnesota. I lived here in Minnesota, down in southern Minnesota. So it's always good to come back to Minnesota. I'd like to talk today a little bit about this book called God in the White House, How Faith Shaped the Presidency, from John F. Kennedy to George W. Bush. It's probably fair to say that the idea for writing this book came on the eve of the Iowa Precinct Caucuses in 2000, when then-Governor George W. Bush declared in response to one of the questions from the moderator, uh, on the eve of the, uh, of the caucuses with the Des Moines Register debate, that Jesus was his favorite philosopher. As a historian, I guess I immediately, or at least almost immediately, juxtaposed that with John F. Kennedy's speech at the Rice Hotel in Houston on September 12, 1960 in which he effectively urged voters to set aside a candidate's faith, his religious affiliations, when they went into the voting booth. And it struck me at the time, and to be honest, it still strikes me, that that's a huge distance between the Rice Hotel in Houston in 1960 and George W. Bush's declaration that Jesus was his favorite philosopher. And so I sat down and tried to understand the narrative arc between those two events, uh, kind of framing the this book. I decided to start with Kennedy for a lot of o- obvious reasons. Kennedy, of course, was only the second Roman Catholic major party nominee to run for president. The first had been Alfred E. Smith, the governor of New York in 1928 and Alfred Smith was running against Herbert Hoover, who people often forget was running for his first elective office in 1928. He had never held any other elective office. He had been Secretary of Commerce, but uh, his run for the White House was the first time he ran for any elective post. In that campaign, there was a lot of nativism that was dredged up in American society. Uh, the The KKK was quite active in trying to discourage voters from voting for a Roman Catholic. And in fact, Herbert Hoover trounced Alfred E. Smith in the election of 1928. According to popular lore, once the election results came in, Alfred Smith sent a one-word telegram to the Vatican, unpack. It is certainly the case that Roman Catholics had made a great deal of progress in American society in the years between 1928 and 1960 when John Kennedy tried once again to win the presidency. Uh, When I lecture about this topic to students, I often talk about the centrality of the GI Bill of Rights in 1944, which provided for the sons of Catholic immigrants to attend college on the GI Bill and thereby to tow the bottom rung in the ladder toward middle class uh, upward mobility uh, in the uh, years after World War II. But still, as Senator Kennedy, then the junior senator from Massachusetts, was contemplating a run for the presidency, he knew he had to deal with the so-called religious issue before he stood any realistic chance of being elected president of the United States. Part of what was in the background of his thinking was the popularity of a book published in 1949 by Paul Blanchard called American Freedom and Catholic Power. In that book, Blanchard argued essentially that Roman Catholicism was fundamentally incompatible with the canons of American democracy. And and therefore, voters should think very carefully before they ever considered electing a Catholic as president of the United States. What made this book unusual was not the argument, those sorts of arguments had been around for a long time going back into the 19th century. But what made this this book unusual was the fact that Blanchard himself was not some sort of fringe nativist trying to dredge up these sorts of uh, anti-Catholic sentiments or even xenophobic sentiments against uh, Catholic immigrants. But Blanchard instead was in fact a graduate of the University of Michigan, He studied at Columbia University, also Union Theological Seminary, and Harvard University. So he was a very respectable individual making these arguments. And in fact, American Freedom and Catholic Power, when it was published in 1949 by Beacon Press in Boston, Massachusetts, went through 11 printings in as many months, signaling that this was, in fact, a very popular book. Uh, In fact, even today, If you uh, troll the the aisles of uh, used bookstores, which is one of my favorite pastimes, as you might imagine, very often you'll come across copies of American Freedom and Catholic Power by Paul Blanchard, making this argument against Roman Catholics ever occupying the Oval Office. So Kennedy was aware of that. He also had to come to terms with the fact that the, the overwhelming suspicion on the part of the Democratic Party was that a Catholic would pull down the ticket. And in 1956, in fact, he decided to place his name into contention or consideration for the vice presidential nod of the Democratic Party running along Adlai Stevenson, who was trying for a second time to defeat Dwight Eisenhower. Some of you may remember that in that election, Stevenson threw open the vice presidential choice to the entire convention, the Democratic National Convention. But Kennedy wanted to make the point that he could be a contender on the national ticket. And uh, as the convention was unfolding, Kennedy released a a study that purported to show that that a Roman Catholic would not in fact drag down the ticket uh, in, the, in the national uh, election. In fact, part of the reasoning was that a Catholic would be good for the ticket because Catholics are good family people, family values, and so forth, and that if Kennedy was on the ticket, it might counterbalance the fact that Adlai Stevenson was divorced and remarried. Uh, you can uh, muse about the, the, uh, uh, that sort of logic uh, in light of what we came to know about Kennedy uh, later on. Kennedy announced his candidacy for the White House, and you'll be interested in this date, on January 3rd, 1960, shows how far we've come in this uh, election cycle. The Iowa precinct caucuses were held on January 3rd of this year, so the whole campaign mechanism has uh, been very much uh, drawn out. And in so doing, he recognized that at some point he was going to have to address the religious issue. He thought, frankly, that he had put it to rest when he was able to defeat Hubert Humphrey from Minnesota in the West Virginia primary, West Virginia being an overwhelmingly Protestant state. And in fact, when the election returns came in, Kennedy, in his acceptance speech, in his victory speech, said, we finally put the religious issue to rest for this campaign. Well, as you can imagine, that was not to be the case. In the course of doing research for the book, I came across a fascinating letter in the JFK Library up in Boston from Billy Graham to John F. Kennedy. And Billy Graham writes to Kennedy, and he's uh, very friendly and very uh, warm and and cordial, as you might imagine. And he says that there have been a lot of rumors that I, Billy Graham, intend to introduce the so-called religious issue in this fall campaign. I'm writing simply to assure you that I have no intention of doing so. As you can imagine, he went on, because of my longstanding friendship with Richard Nixon, I will probably vote for Nixon in in the fall election in November, but I have no intention of raising the so-called religious issue in this campaign. About 10 days later, in Montreux, Switzerland, Billy Graham hosted a gathering of Protestant leaders who were talking about ways that they could deny the election to John F. Kennedy in the fall election, fall campaign. The upshot of, the movie, of that meeting in Montreux was another gathering of Protestant ministers, this one at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. About 150 Protestant ministers gathered there at the Mayflower Hotel right after Labor Day, which is the traditional start of the fall campaign. Graham was not there, but several very prominent evangelical leaders were there, including Harold John Ockingay and Norman Vincent Peale, pastor of Marble Collegiate Church in New York City. Uh, the, the ministers gathered for a time in their meeting, and then they held a press conference, at which time Peale and Ockingay and, and several others said, we are. We, we gathered here this morning, We we, we talked today about the dangers facing America if uh, a Roman Catholic should be elected to the presidency. And we wanted to alert our fellow citizens, our fellow voters, that this may be a problem, and we want to call attention to this. As it happened, one of the reporters covering the press conference asked, well, you talked about Kennedy, but uh, Richard Nixon is a Quaker. Did you talk about how his Quakerism might affect the way he conducted himself in office? And Norman Vincent Vincent Peale replied with what I'm sure was an unintentionally funny comment. He said about Nixon and his Quakerism, I'm not sure he ever let it bother him. (laughs) In part because of this gathering of Protestant leaders and because of the swell of anti-Catholic rhetoric in the 1960 campaign, Richard, I'm sorry, uh, John F. Kennedy decided that he had to address the so-called religious issue directly. He did so in part at the encouragement of his advisors, which included John Kenneth Galbraith and Archibald Cox of Harvard University, both of whom sensed that this was an issue, especially in the Heartland, and he needed to address the issue head on. And so on September 12, 1960, at the Rice Hotel in Houston, John Kennedy stood before a gathering of about 300 Protestant ministers, a very hostile audience, I assure you, and delivered his famous speech to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association, essentially telling voters that they should disregard a candidate's faith when they went into the voting booth. My contention in this book is that what I call the Kennedy paradigm of voter indifference to a candidate's faith really prevailed in American politics. In the 1960 election, 64, 68, again in 1972. And it's not until 1976 that we see a reintroduction of the language of faith and piety into presidential politics. Let me cite one bit of evidence for that. In 1968, as some of you may remember, the leading candidate for the Republican nomination early on in the primary season was the governor of Michigan. George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, also a Mormon. I happened to be living in Michigan at the time, after we moved from Minnesota, and I remember nothing in that campaign about Romney's faith, his Mormonism, in the course of that campaign. And in the course of doing research for the book, I went back to try to see if I'd missed something. Was it really an issue? And I hadn't uh, picked up on it uh, as as a, a child there in Michigan. And I found no evidence that that was an issue in the campaign. George Romney's campaign imploded, as some of you remember, when he confessed to being brainwashed about Vietnam. And that pretty much derailed his candidacy in 1968. But it was not his faith. It was not his Mormonism. So the Kennedy paradigm of indifference toward a a candidate's faith really prevails throughout those elections and is not reintroduced into American politics until 1976. And I think one of the great paradoxes is that Richard Nixon, the man that Kennedy defeated in 1960, is paradoxically responsible for the reintroduction of faith and piety into presidential campaigning. I think it's impossible to imagine Jimmy Carter, the one-term governor of Georgia, a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, coming out of political nowhere in 1976, had it not been for Richard Nixon. Jimmy Carter came on the national scene. He declared that he was a born-again Christian, thereby sending every journalist in New York to his Rolodex to figure out what in the world he was talking about. (laughs) He also promised a government as good and decent as the American people. He promised never knowingly to lie to the American people, and Americans at that point were so tired of Richard Nixon's endless prevarications that they embraced uh, Jimmy Carter, and he became the nominee and, of course, won in 1976. Uh, I want to circle back just quickly and talk about a couple of the other presidents before I pick up again with uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, a fascinating individual. Bill Moyers said that Lyndon Johnson was 13 of the most fascinating people he'd ever met. Um, A man of really Shakespearean dimensions, and in the course of doing research for the book, I I really uh, became just utterly fascinated with with Lyndon Johnson. Um, As I was doing the the chapter, I had heard a story about Johnson in the White House. One night he was working late with his aides, as he often did, he worked virtually 24 hours a day. And they had a working dinner there in the White House, and before they began uh, to, to eat, uh, Johnson asked Bill Moyers, his assistant, and also a Baptist minister to say grace before they, they, uh, they started their dinner. And uh, Moyers at the other end of the table began praying and almost immediately Johnson interrupted, bellowing, speak up Moyers, I can't hear you. Whereupon, according to the story, Bill Moyers at the other end of the table said in a quiet, even voice, I wasn't speaking to you, sir. I asked Mr. Moyers if he would uh, read a draft of, uh, of that chapter on Johnson because I was having so much trouble understanding Johnson and uh, he, he was gracious enough to do so and he you know, replied with several comments but he confirmed that that story is true. <laughs> Lyndon Johnson was not an openly religious or, or pious man as some of us remember. <laughs> Uh, He was a member of the Church of Christ, which is part of the Restorationist tradition. And even his membership in the Church of Christ was a manifestation of a kind of adolescent rebellion. His mother was a devout Baptist. His father was a Christadelphian and a bunch of other things. And he decided as part of adolescent rebellion to become a member of the Church of Christ. But even though he wasn't religious, his mother gave him a simple moral principle that he sought to governed by as President of the United States. The strong have an obligation to care for the weak. He even had that, symbol, that sentiment emblazoned on his uh, cache of presidential gifts that he would hand out to visitors in the Oval Office. That explains why Lyndon Johnson, a white southerner, pushed so relentlessly for civil rights the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, at considerable political cost to himself, because he thought that the strong had an obligation to care for the weak. It's also what animated his great society ambitions. And the great society has been criticized a whole lot in recent years, recent decades for that matter. But what animated that was the conviction on the part of Lyndon Johnson that the strong had an obligation to care for the weak. Medicare, the War on poverty, all those were part of the programs of the great society, motivated by that simple moral principle tragically it 's also what he used to justify the deepening of america 's involvement in Vietnam. The strong have an obligation he believed to care for the weak after Johnson became to Richard, come to Richard Nixon uh, in the the drafting of the Constitution, the Founding Fathers made a remarkable concession to religious pluralism. Actually, several of them, but in this case, uh, uh, one in particular. They allowed a new president taking the oath of office either to swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States or merely to affirm that he will uphold the Constitution of the United States. That was a concession to Quakers. Followers of John Fox, the head of that movement, the founder of that movement, who believed that a believer, a true Christian, should not swear allegiance to anyone. His sole allegiance was to God, but the language of affirmation was fine. So in fact, when Herbert Hoover, the only other Quaker to have uh, in American history to be a, uh, a president of the United States, when Herbert Hoover took the oath of office in March of 1929, he affirmed that he would uphold the Constitution of the United States. After Richard Nixon's election in 1968, as they were making preparations for the uh, inauguration, Richard Nixon was given the option of either affirming or swearing his allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. But as we all came to learn later, Richard Nixon had no problem with swearing. Nixon's great friend throughout his entire lifetime, or adult lifetime at least, was Billy Graham, who was always detecting these vast reservoirs of uh, faith and piety in Richard Nixon that most of the rest of us could never quite find. (laughs) And I guess one of the things that I find remarkable about the Nixon presidency and Graham's relationship with Nixon was that after the Watergate uh, tapes were uh, uh, released, or the transcripts, rather, Uh, Billy Graham said that he had read through the Watergate transcripts and he was physically sickened by them, as I'm sure he was. But he was pressed a little bit further on that and it turned out he was not physically sickened by Nixon's attempts to undermine the Constitution of the United States, he was physically sickened by his friend's use of foul language. And that's always kind of stuck with me uh, with uh, with Richard Nixon and and Billy Graham. Coming back then to Carter, I think that, uh, to repeat an earlier uh, point, that it's impossible to imagine Carter coming into office without understanding Richard Nixon. Uh, Jimmy Carter is one of two presidents in this span of time that I'm writing about who I call redeemer presidents. The other is George W. Bush. Both of those presidents ran for office with the promise that they would cleanse the temple of the Oval Office of the sins of their predecessors. In the case of of, uh, Jimmy Carter, it was Richard Nixon. In the case of George W. Bush, it was Bill Clinton and his uh, shenanigans uh, in in the Oval Office. But ever since Carter, we've had this language of faith and piety in American politics. One of the great ironies of the Carter years is that Carter, in 1976, was able to lure evangelicals back into politics. And I'm gonna be self-referential here for a moment. And what I found, uh, and what I remember very clearly, is the kind of excitement I felt as an evangelical at that time in college, when uh, somebody who was a, uh, one of us, uh, an evangelical born-again Christian, was open about his faith and was making a serious run for the White House. This was, for many evangelicals, a new development. Evangelicals had been largely complacent and quiescent politically, really, since the end of the Scopes trial in 1925. And Carter begins to lure evangelicals back into the political arena, Southerners especially, because it was Southern Baptist, but some Northern evangelicals as well. One of the great ironies of American presidential politics in the 1970s, 1980s is that many of those same evangelicals turned dramatically against Carter four years later and supported Ronald Reagan in the 1980 campaign. And what we're talking about here is the religious right, and let me just take a moment to say something about the the rise of the religious right. According to the leaders of the religious right, what got them going as a political movement, what galvanized them into a, a, a political force was the moral outrage surrounding or following the Roe v. Wade ruling of the Supreme Court on uh, January 22, 1973? They even have gone so far as to characterize themselves as the so called new abolitionists in order to underscore their opposition to abortion as a moral equivalent of antebellum evangelicals working against the scourge of slavery. This is a great story, and it's also fiction. In fact, Roe v. Wade was not the galvanizing force for the religious right. In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, hardly a bastion of uh, liberalism, passed a resolution at its St. Louis gathering calling for the legalization of abortion, which they reaffirmed in 1974 and again in 1976. When the Roe v. Wade was, ruling was handled down, handed down, several prominent evangelicals, including W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, applauded the Roe v. Wade ruling as marking an appropriate distinction between personal morality and public policy. I call this the abortion myth. How did the religious right galvanize into a political movement? Very quickly. It was a court ruling, yes, that part is true, but it wasn't Roe v. Wade. It was another court ruling at the district level called Green v. Connolly. And the background for Green v. Connolly was that by 1970, the federal government was trying to find ways to enforce some of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1964, which Lyndon Johnson had pushed through Congress and signed into law. In the course of doing so, the Internal Revenue Service issued a ruling that said, any organization that engages in racial segregation or discrimination is not by definition a charitable organization, and therefore has no claim on tax exempt status. Green v. Connolly upheld the Internal Revenue Service in that ruling. In the ensuing years, the IRS then began to enforce the provisions of the Green v. Connolly ruling and began to focus its attention on what became known after the Brown decision of 1954 as segregation academies, many of them in the South, not all of them, and also on a fundamentalist school in Greenville, South Carolina called Bob Jones University, which until 1971 did not admit African-Americans as students and until 1975, did not admit unmarried African-Americans as students. That is what finally got the attention of evangelical preachers and ministers. And they were organized into this movement that we know today as the religious right, uh, organized particularly by Paul Weyrich. And by the way, Weyrich himself is utterly uh, unequivocal on this point. This was, He said, I, I had been trying for years to get evangelicals involved politically. I tried everything, school prayer, I tried abortion, I tried all these various things. It wasn't until the IRS went after Bob Jones University that I finally got their attention. They used that against Jimmy Carter and in embrace of Ronald Reagan in the 1980 election. I'm looking at my time here and I'm afraid I'm, okay, I have to finish up, okay. Well, here we go. Uh, So how do we get from Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush in 30 seconds? Uh, I'm not gonna try, but uh, and I'll I'll certainly entertain questions, and we'll get at some of uh, these issues if you'd like, and uh, certainly want to talk about Mitt Romney, I expect, and I'm happy to do that. Let me just conclude, if I may, by reading a few paragraphs from the conclusion. This falls under the rubric, when in doubt, quote yourself. The lesson of the final decades of the 20th century is that voters should approach candidates' professions of faith with more than a little suspicion. Too often, the vetting of a candidate's religion has diverted our attention from other important questions. And all this is against the background of my general conclusion that in this strain of uh, line of presidents, from Kennedy to George W. Bush, uh, only one president, I believe, has made any serious effort to govern according to the moral principles and religious values upon which he campaigned. And that was Jimmy Carter. And I'd be happy to make that point a bit more fully in in the question and answer, answer time. Perhaps, once again, our disappointment, our anger, even our outrage is misplaced. Most politicians excel in their chosen line of work because they have learned to discern the mood and attitudes and prejudices of the voters. The most skilled among them find ways to reflect those sentiments back to, the electorate. Among the people who claim overwhelmingly to be Christian in our nation, while well over 80 percent of us tell pollsters that we believe in God or a supreme being, it is no wonder that politicians clamor to speak the language of faith. For many of those politicians, perhaps, the sentiments are sincere. For others, however, considering their actions once in office, the claims are questionable. The unwillingness of voters to interrogate those claims and to hold candidates and presidents accountable for their professions of piety, however, renders the rhetoric of religion on the campaign trail meaningless. What would have happened, for example, if there had been a series of thoughtful follow-up questions to George W. Bush's declarations back in Des Moines, Iowa, that Jesus was his favorite philosopher? Mr. Bush, Jesus demands in the Sermon on the Mount that his followers turn the other cheek how will that teaching guide your conduct of American foreign policy, especially in the event of, say, an attack on the United States? Or, Jesus, your favorite philosopher, says that we should care for the least of these. How does that inform your understanding of welfare, or social security, or civil rights, or the graduated income tax? Can you provide a specific example of how your fidelity to the Christian faith affected your policies as governor of Texas? Then once in office, questions like this. Jesus expressed concern for the well-being of the tiniest sparrow. Do you see any relationship between that sentiment and your administration's environmental policies? Or Mr. President Jesus, the man you invoked on the campaign trail as your favorite philosopher invited his followers to love their enemies. How does that teaching square with the invasion of Iraq or with your administration's policies on torture? Other pres- presidents who have made professions of faith should also be pressed to validate their claims. Mr. Reagan, you repeatedly assured voters on the campaign trail that your religious convictions impelled you to work for making abortion illegal. Yet you did not make any serious attempt to do so. Why not? By the way, I- in looking and reading through uh, Reagan's biography, autobiography, over 700 pages, the issue of abortion, which he claimed was the defining moral issue of our time, appears not once. Mr. Clinton, unlike many of your predecessors, you attend church services most Sundays when you are in Washington and much of the time when you're campaigning. How do you account for the disjunction between your expressions of faith and your private behavior? The problem of religiously inflected political rhetoric it seems lies not so much with the politicians as with the populace. We allow politicians to hypnotize us with lullabies about faith and morality, and then we fail to take that rhetoric seriously, much less hold them to the principles they articulate so blithely. And when a politician like Jimmy Carter comes along, someone who dares to govern according to the Christian morality he espoused on the campaign trail, we angrily throw him out of office. What does that say about us, the voters? I think it suggests that we, too, talk a good game about faith and religion and morality. But the rhetoric fails to match that reality. Religion has been bleached out by the bromides of political rhetoric, as well as by the comfortable myth that the United States is a Christian nation. We've been blinded by the false gospel of America's moral superiority, which finds little resonance of late in our policies. Many politicians have proven themselves quite adept at feeding us this pablum. We devour it shamelessly. The hypocrisy is overwhelming, but the greater measure of blame lies with the voters than with the politicians, who, after all, merely parrot back to us what they think we want to hear. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Randall Balmer. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is author and historian Randall Balmer. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many supporters, especially the co-sponsor of today's event, the Center for Religious Inquiry at St. Mark's Cathedral in downtown Minneapolis. Randall Bomber, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. You suggest that you might have something to say about Mitt Romney. Oh, uh, let's his, start with uh, Mitt Romney. <laughs> his, uh, Mormonism and this candidacy and this yes. season.
1: I'm not in any position to advise Mitt Romney, and I'm not sure I particularly want him to succeed, but I think he played it all wrong, frankly. Uh, People talked about his JFK speech down in College Station, Texas, at the George Bush Library, drawing parallels between that and Kennedy's speech at the Rice Hotel. I think Romney was hamstrung by the fact that the two central arguments of Kennedy's speech in 1960 essentially were unavailable to Romney. Kennedy in that speech unequivocally affirmed his support for the separation of church and state and he also renounced any government support for religious schools. Now, Romney was trying to pander after the votes of the religious right, the leaders of whom don't believe in any, either of those two things. And so those arguments were not available to him. If he were looking for a model, I would have suggested to him, had I been advising him, uh, not so much JFK as Joe Lieberman. Some of you remember uh, with Joe Lieberman, when uh, Al Gore named him to the Democratic ticket in 2000, there was a flurry of questions about Joe Lieberman being a Jew, uh, observant Jew, Orthodox Jew, what's the difference, why don't you campaign on the Sabbath, and so forth. And what Lieberman did is he answered those questions directly without trying to be evasive. Unlike Romney, who was always getting very testy when anybody, whenever anybody asked him about his faith. I don't speak for my church. I'm not a theologian, he kept saying. And that, I think, merely reinforced people's suspicions. And I think if he had followed the example of Lieberman being unapologetic about his faith, he would have been much better off. If he had said, for example, yes, I'm a Mormon. I've been, um, this is the faith of my family for generations. It helps me to understand myself, my place in the world, the way I deal with others. Uh, I don't apologize for that, even though I recognize that many other Americans won't uh, see this as a legitimate faith. This is who I am. I think if he'd done that, he'd been much uh, better shape. I think finally, just and I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, he probably missed his best argument. Uh, Mormons believe that the charter documents of the United States of America, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are actually divinely inspired. I would think that there might be a few Americans that might respond uh, favorably to a presidential candidate who had a very high view of of the Constitution.
0: What role do you expect religion will play in the 2008 presidential campaign if the candidates are Senator Obama and McCain as it appears they will be?
1: I think it's a fascinating question, and uh, I usually try to get away from such questions by saying I'm a historian, I'm not a prognosticator, but I'll give it a shot anyway. Um, I think what what the the Democrats took out of the, the 2004 debacle was that they had to learn to speak the vocabulary of faith. And I think throughout this campaign season, the Democratic candidates have done a reasonably good job of doing that. And I think it is sincere uh, I think the real danger of, of trying to, uh, of, of using this vocabulary for the Democrats is that if it comes off as being contrived or inauthentic, then it's going it's to uh, backfire on them. It's going to blow, blow up in their faces. But I think so far, at least, the, the candidates have been quite forthright about, the, about this. Uh, but again, getting back to my larger point, I think that we, the voters, settle for these sort of bland affirmations on the part of all presidential candidates. And we need to really push them on that. Well, it's one thing to say you're a Christian, but uh, being a Christian means that you subscribe to certain values. How are those going to be translated into policy? I think we should press uh, all candidates about that. I think uh, it's pretty clear right now that the the right, or at least the far right, is trying to uh, tar Obama with uh, the Muslim charge and and so forth, which of course is not true. He's not Muslim, he's a a Congregationalist. And so far I think he's been able to neutralize that, I think, uh, reasonably well. So in the fall, we got uh, you know, Obama and, if projections hold, Obama, the Congregationalists against McCain, who actually can't seem to decide if he's a Baptist or an Episcopalian, um, and which should be interesting. I actually wrote a column last week to try to help him out. You know, uh, <laughs> I've rarely been confused about the two, but you know maybe. Uh, Maybe I know and care too much about that. I think one of the really in- interesting things that just this morning in the Times that uh, McCain has now been, in- been uh, uh, endorsed by John Hagee down in Texas who advocates that the United States should uh, promptly bomb Iran. Um, I'm wondering if anybody's going to make the same sort of uh, demands of John McCain that he renounce the support of uh, John Hagee.
0: Does it make any difference in terms of policies uh, if the god in the White House is the god of Jerry Falwell or the god of Bishop
1: Spong? <laughs> oh, I'm sure it would. <laughs> I'm sure it would. Uh, go on to the next question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> that, I think that's... that's that. The question falls into the category of the devil in the deep blue sea, doesn't
0: it? How much influence did Jimmy Carter's evangelical religious belief have on the success or lack thereof of his presidency?
1: I think that's a very good question. I think arguably you can make the point that uh, Carter's faith hurt him. Uh, I don't think you can make the case that the faith itself or the faith alone hurt him. Uh, my sense of Carter, and I'm thinking very seriously about the next book being a biography of Carter, who really does seem to be a fascinating figure to me. My sense of Carter is that he was a very good campaigner. He was a lousy politician. He really didn't know how to, to manipulate the, the levers uh, of power. But I make the point in the book that Carter actually tried to govern according to the moral principles that he articulated, and I think it hurt him politically. Uh, Some of you remember that almost immediately upon taking office, he set about to renegotiate the Panama Canal Treaties. Well, most Americans didn't know that the Panama Canal Treaties needed to be renegotiated. I mean, he took this on as, as... Uh, kind of an unnecessary battle uh, politically speaking but morally he thought that was the right thing to do and he expended a great deal of political capital in doing that he also thought it was morally the right thing to do to call attention to human rights abuses around the world even as he angered a lot of our allies in in so doing he also uh, because of his principles pursued uh, quite doggedly uh, some sort of lasting peace in the Middle East, and I think you can make the case that in the last half century he's the one president who actually made real progress in that area, certainly the most progress in that area. So I think it did hurt him. Uh, I don't think that's the only thing that hurt him. I think he was, he was a micromanager, and, and, and as I said, I think in many ways a lousy politician, but I think his moral principles probably did get in the way, yeah.
0: Having studied the role of religion and candidacy and presidents, In your opinion, could an openly avowed Unitarian, not a believer in the Trinity, be elected president now? No, no.
1: I I don't think so, no. And and I think that's unfortunate. Uh, I mean, speaking obviously in the abstract without evaluating the merits of any particular candidate, uh, I I think that is unfortunate. Uh, We Americans speak the language of faith and piety, and we demand that our candidates do the same. And as I try to make the point in the book, I don't think it's gotten us very far. Uh, It it hasn't really made a a whole lot of difference. So a Unitarian as president, uh, I I don't think that that would in any way uh, handicap her or him in the conduct of of office. But I don't think, given our present situation, that Americans are ready to to go that way. Uh, Gary Wills argued that our first truly secular candidate for president was, was Michael Dukakis in 1988. And look what happened to him. What about Thomas Jefferson, an avowed deist? <laughs> yeah, Could right. he be elected today? I think Jefferson probably had a, would have a hard time, but he had a hard time in, 19, in, in 1800, too. Uh, he, was, he was tarred with the brush of infidelity by his political opponents, by the Federalists, and so he had a very difficult time winning that, uh, that presidency against John Adams in, in 1980, precisely because he was seen as, as uh, less than orthodox.
0: What is it that you think that motivates the public to go along with the, the, the pious positions that, that are put forward by presidential candidates?
1: I talk about this in the book as what I call cheap grace. I think we the voters, and, I, and the book really is an indictment of us uh, rather than the politicians themselves who, as I said, you know, merely parrot it back to us what they think we want, us, they, we want to hear. I think that we go along with these affirmations because it's, it's a kind of lullaby. And it, we really don't interrogate those claims. You know, I, As I said in the passage I read, you know, what if we had followed up in those questions with George W. Bush in 2000 and asked him some pretty penetrating questions about these things? I think if we started to do that, then either the the candidates would be forced to live up to their affirmations, or if they know those affirmations are false and empty, they would no longer make them. But we go along with that. Uh, Cheap Grace, I think, uh, in in 1976, Jimmy Carter, Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, comes out of political nowhere, and we um, voters embraced him in the 76 campaign, thinking that simply by pulling the lever, that we could put all the Nixon mess behind us, as well as our own complicity. Why was Nixon in there in the first place? We put him in there. Not only did we put him in there in 1968, we overwhelmingly, one of the landslides in American presidential history, we overwhelmingly re-elected him in 1972, and we knew all about him. I mean, Nixon had this whole tawdry history of, of uh, shenanigans and, and dirty tricks, and yet we put him in office. Simply pull the lever, and we don't have to ask ourselves very penetrating questions about our own complicity. So too with the other redeemer president that I mentioned, uh, George W. Bush. Pull the lever for Bush and put the whole Clinton tawdry mess behind us, rather than asking ourselves and our society some pretty penetrating, penetrating is not the right word probably, some pretty um, Hard question, oh, that's not either. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, per- uh, uh, this is a, tr- I've gotta got retreat pretty fast. Questions. I think I'm rather- <laughs> Asking ourselves some questions about, some questions. Some questions about this, our society's collective tolerance for sexuality all over the place, television, internet, entertainment. Our collective tolerance for transitional sexual relationships pull the lever for George W. Bush, it's all behind us. We don't have to ask questions of ourselves. What
0: about our journalists, what about the media? Are they uh, responsible for this I think as the well? media
1: have really fallen down on this. Uh, I suggested uh, some follow-up questions to George W. Bush, but I think generally the media are not very well educated about matters of religion. Now I teach from time to time at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, and I think we're trying to change that a little bit. And I think it is changing a little bit. But I think by and large, the the media, members of the media are religiously illiterate, so they don't know what kinds of questions to ask. So I think it's especially important in places like Iowa and New Hampshire where voters do have one-on-one time with the candidates to push the issues, but also collectively to uh, encourage members of the media to become more savvy on religious and theological matters.
0: A couple comments about Keith Ellison in our questions. Uh, crossed a, a threshold there with Ellison's election. He asserted in today's paper, by the way, that a Muslim could indeed be elected president. I read
1: that, yes. Yes. Would you concur with that? Yeah, I, I, yeah, Keith Ellison said in today's uh, Star Tribune that he thought a Muslim could be elected president of the United States. I think that's probably a little bit premature. I don't think we're quite ready for that uh, yet. Um, the kind of uh, attack machine that will be gearing up uh, even against Obama. I heard Pat Buchanan uh, the other day on the radio saying that uh, once the RNC gets going this fall against Obama, they're going to make the Swift Boat ads look like public service announcements. Uh, and I think that uh, that sort of attack would would await any Muslim making a run for the White House right now. But I, you know, one of the things that, that I love about this country, and I consider myself deeply patriotic, is that we do come around, and I think that we are coming around. The fact, I, to me, I stepped, with this campaign se- season, I step back from time to time and, and just kind of try to take in the whole scene. And to me, the, the idea that this country may inaugurate a black American as president of the United States in January is staggering. I mean, I, 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 mean, I just, I, I find it al- almost stupefying. You know, how far we've come. Now, you know, we should have been here a long time ago, certainly, absolutely, and I, I grant the point. But, you know, given the, 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 the fairly recent civil rights movement, uh, considering the long span of history, you know, that's, that's really remarkable. Now, other people can say, well, what about a woman? And I think you can make that case as well. But there's something about an African American taking the oath of office that I think is really quite extraordinary.
0: You're a, an active professing Christian, in fact, an Episcopalian priest. Uh, what about uh, the Christian Gospels directive to go and make disciples of all nations This kind of an evangelical imperative? Does a Christian president owe allegiance to that kind of language, those commitments?
1: Well, I, I think personally he or she does, certainly. I think that's uh, one of the mandates of, of... Uh, of Jesus is to preach the gospel. Now I think I don't wanna have a longer conversation about what does preaching mean? Does it mean necessarily in getting up behind a pulpit and, uh, and, and declaiming or proclaiming? Uh, or can you preach in, in, in all sorts of ways? I think you can. The Constitution was very clear that, there, that for, on the separation of church and state but also that there should be no religious test for office holders. And that I think works both ways. It works both ways in the sense that we, the voters, or the Constitution does not apply a a religious test for a political office demanding that somebody be, say, an Episcopalian or a Methodist or something uh, something like that. But it also doesn't preclude an Episcopalian or a Methodist or, in this case, primary season, a Baptist minister from being President of the United States. That's perfectly legitimate under the under the Constitution, and I think that's the way it, it should be. Now, the matter of how he or she conducts himself or herself in office, I think that a president has to recognize that she or he is uh, the, the, the titular figurehead of the, the entire country. So I think some actions are probably not appropriate uh, in the conduct of office. But I have no objection whatsoever to someone who has deep, um, principles of faith uh, being president. In fact, I think you know, on balance, that's probably a good thing. I just wish that it made more difference from the from this perspective of history.
0: Thank you, Randall Balmer.